little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hi, and welcome to A Million Drops. I'm Scott Clapson, and we are here today with a show called Real Good Stuff, and we have a special guest, Roberta Morris. How are you, Roberta? I'm fine, thank you. You are a priest at a local Episcopal church, yes? I do a ministry out of the Church of the Epiphany in okay. Lincoln Heights. It's an Episcopal church. I'm not stationed there, whatever <laughs> the word is. I just am working there in the, running the legal clinic. I'm what they call bifocational priest. So my main ministry oh, is with wow. my students. I'm a professor and a writer. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. That is very cool. So you're not actually like doing the sermons and things. You're more in with the community. I was doing the sermons and things until last um, June. Okay. And last June I stepped back because I, um, my teaching, I was just burnt. Yeah. <laughs> my teaching is quite, quite a lot. Yeah. And um, I'm also a writer. So yeah. I was working on two books at the time. Oh, wow. And running the legal clinic and doing the work I'm doing for the advocacy with the, yeah. you know, the unhoused and the, housing justice ministry. So it was yeah. a lot. So I backed away a bit from the okay. day-to-day church groove. Yeah. You're quite a champion, though, for our neighbors and friends who are unhoused. And I'm quite impressed with not just how well-spoken you are about it, but about how accessible you are about it as an advocate and someone who, I mean, I don't think you've ever had the experience of being without permanent shelter, from my knowledge, correct? But you seem very compassionate and very aware. Where does that come from? Um, our unhoused neighbors are our neighbors. And yeah. most of the people, when we listen to the stories, just they're, you know, it's not them and us, and mm-hmm. we fall into that language, but we're all neighbors, and we have to figure out how to be better neighbors. Yeah. You sound a little bit like Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries, that whole us and them, and there's really no us and them. There is just us, right? And it's such a powerful concept when we're trying to be in community with folks and we're trying to love them and serve them, and we view them as having less or, or being in a completely different situation than us. And we start to listen to them, and we realize... They have a lot more in common with us than we thought they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that might be easier for people if they actually do talk to unhoused people now than it was. Mm-hmm. Me- when I first started doing this kind of work, it was um, in the 1970s. Oh, wow. And um, at that time, I, I think it was almost 80%. The majority of the unhoused people in, uh, at that time were people who had been de- what they called deinstitutionalized. Right. There was a big emptying out mm-hmm. of um, psychiatric facilities, and it was supposed to be a progressive move mm-hmm. to deinstitutionalize right. people. Unfortunately, it wasn't accompanied with the proper support. So what that meant was that deinstitutionalized meant becoming homeless yeah. or living in really substandard housing. 
um, boarding houses. Mm-hmm. And that was that was more than 50%. Some people said it was almost 80% yeah. of the unhoused at that time. Okay. That isn't the case anymore. Yeah. Not because those people are housed, but because so many more groups of people have become mm-hmm. unhoused. Um, yeah. So you've been working on this for a long time then. Yeah. Oh, wow. All my adult life. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I had uh, no, that's something I didn't know about you. I haven't been doing it professionally all my okay. adult life. I did it, it when um, I was doing it in the seminary when okay. I was doing my Master of Divinity. I was in my early 20s. And then um, it's just something I've been, it's been part of my life. In um, Toronto, where I raised my children, we had a program okay. out of the cold. Because in Canada, yeah, it's... He can be deadly. Oh, yeah. Totally. And so uh, we had uh, this program where, during the winter months where people could come and stay in the churches. And we were involved in that. And then mm-hmm. I have a great story about that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> with my son. Sure. Everybody was concerned about my son being involved. But it okay. turns out, because he was very young, but he yeah. was into it. He was like seven and eight and nine. And um, kids can be very good at this. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that. The statistics show that very seldom was there any violence if a child was present. Right. Um, so that act, the safest situation was having a child there, not, mm-hmm. and even though everybody was concerned about that. But when he got to be about 14, I think, I started getting all these mail, this mail from banks and I, to him. And I thought, what the heck is this? And uh, finally I asked him, you know, what is going on here? And it turns out that they had this deal with kids that they would open up bank accounts for them for free okay. to get them to like become customers. Okay. And they would give them a bank card. And he was taking, opening up all these accounts and getting these bank cards so that, that, and giving them out to unhoused people so that they could go in and stay warm. Right. right? <laughs> it's like, it's really young. And I thought that was, but it was because he had known these people. These were yeah, his neighbors too. And totally. he knew that they would co- were cold and this would be a solution. That's I think so that's, that's, cute. Yeah, it was really sweet. But I think that that's one of the things we just have to remember is that when we do treat each other as neighbors, we get more imaginative right. about solutions. Yeah. Oh, completely. Completely. And that's something that... <clears throat> has been really impressive to me as I've listened to you talk um, in the time that I've gotten to know you about your awareness of, as you just stated with what happened with the initial intention with the deinstitutionalizing of folks who were struggling with severe mental illness, much like what's happening now with the decriminalization of some of the heavier drugs, right? There's nothing in place Right for these people to be able to get the help that they need, so it's wonderful to want to integrate them more into society or get them the help that they need and things. But if that help's not there, we create like a downstream thing where we kind of victim blame and we go, "Oh well, the homeless person, you know that homeless person, it's their fault." You, as an advocate, are very aware of upstream causes, which a lot of folks don't get, even what victim blaming is and kind of looking at the individual and saying it's the individual's fault somehow. You're very aware of that, like societally, what causes homelessness? What makes you aware of it? And what do you think the biggest cause currently is of the upstream cause of homelessness? I think if we just listen, you'll hear yeah. it. 
Okay. Most people have a story, and when yeah. you listen to their story, it becomes quite clear how it happens. We had um, a man joining us when um, we were all evicted in my building. Okay. And he was really articulate about his situation, and he just told the story. He lost his job, and then he moved into his car, and then his car got taken, and then now he lives at the corner. Okay. That's the upstream. Yeah. We're all very close Mm -hmm. to that. I think that was one of the things that became really clear recently with the government shutdown. Yeah. Is how many people are living paycheck to paycheck. And that paycheck doesn't come. Mm -hmm. The eviction notice comes. And wow. Yeah. And it's fast. Yeah. It's very fast. It's startling how fast it can happen. Yeah. And we don't always realize because we're so... Right now we're in the state of crisis or emergency that they keep talking about with people who are unhoused. And what I've noticed kind of happens is it becomes this kind of panic thing of like, oh my gosh, there's all these people and it's so overwhelming and what are we going to do? And like you just said, every single person has a different reason why. And some of us are more privileged. Like myself, I'm a lot more privileged in my experience and my ability to communicate and do podcasts and things like that. But I meet folks that don't have any social capital at all. And they don't know like if they can't get to a food site, where are they going to get food? Or if they can't get here to the church, where are they going to get a shower? Can they go to the shower of hope in a different location? Um, and sometimes we don't realize the trauma that's led people to their experience of being unhoused and all of the bad Things that have led them there that then can cause them to not want to engage and go to a shower site or go to a food site or whatever because they're traumatized and being around folks for whatever reason is is scary for them. Yeah. I think that's one of the things, too, with women that we have to be aware of. You, we don't, mm-hmm. the, Women don't tend to be as visible, right. partly because of some of those reasons. Yeah. They're more afraid, and they're mm-hmm. more afraid for good reason. Oh, yeah. Um, the rape that mm-hmm. goes on among women who are unhoused is something I don't think most people, I don't hear people talk about that yeah. except for people who've been ex- in that experience right. themselves. Yeah. Well, I think again, cause it's so scary and it makes people feel powerless. And like you said, I'm becoming aware of how many people are on that edge. And those folks are, some of them are terrified of what could happen. And I think it makes people not want to talk about it because we're not really comfortable talking about, sexual assault anyway and mm-hmm. how rampant it can be in our society and then you add that sort of layer on it um and it definitely becomes and well there was a lady here that used to come to the church and she had a couple of carts and she just disappeared one day and nobody knew and nobody can find her and we're hoping that she got housing we're hoping that she just moved on to a new neighborhood or something but nobody's seen her at any of the places she used to frequent and that concerned me because she was in her 50s and she was by herself, mm-hmm. um, but she's a sweet, sweet, sweet lady. But she had that same kind of experience of everywhere she'd go, she'd have that thing where she'd have to be really aware of the men in the environment and what was happening to her. And that's something that as a male, you don't really think about, you know, the safety in the same kind of way. Right. I was talking to this woman that seemed like she really had it together and, mm-hmm. um, and she had been homeless and she was really determined she wasn't going to be homeless again. But she seemed very... Yeah, like kind of, she had a kind of almost professional demeanor, mm-hmm. and and she was no, I'm, I'm never gonna let that happen to me again. For one thing, I I'd, I was raped seven times. 
and my I didn't want my jaw to drop. I mean, it's shocking, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to give her that mm-hmm. kind of right. like, oh, don't tell me this is upsetting yeah. to me, because yeah. <laughs> like, it's not yeah. about me; it's about right. her. Yeah. But um, you know, that story has really stuck with me. Yeah. Um, in my work, I just feel like don't don't forget you don't know. Right. What do you? Th- what do you think is a good way when someone is in a situation like that and does share something so, like, how would you, how do you keep yourself from reacting in a way that might make them feel like they should shut down and not share anymore? Well, it's listening skills. Mm-hmm. I just listen. Um, shock is not necessarily inappropriate. Mm-hmm. It's just not necessarily helpful. Yeah. And if you're there for the other person, you're trying to figure out what's right. going to be helpful to them, not what's yeah. going to like express your feelings. Right, exactly. right? Like yeah. Your yeah. feelings might not be the most important thing on the table right now. Right. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad she shared that with me because mm-hmm. I don't think I would have been as clear about that had I not had that experience of someone just putting it out there. Mm-hmm. And I started looking at some of the statistics, and it is really important to yeah. understand the invisibility of um, homeless women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole uh, movement right now in Los Angeles called She Does, and that's all around that. And it's so important because, again, like this this woman that I know, I mean, I had seen her at multiple different places that I would go for different things, and then all of a sudden she was, and she was going to church with us here. Hollywood Adventist and she loved it and then just one week she just wasn't around anymore mm. and that does happen though when you're in a community and you're as I've been you know surviving homelessness over this last like year and a half there are people that come and go and you wonder what happens when someone just disappears and where did they go did they leave did they go back to where they're from which is LA it's kind of is a normal happening for people to come and go from the city But also at the same time, when someone's struggling and in such a vulnerable position, you wonder, you know, like, did something happen to them? Are they okay? Um, And because I do consider them, a lot of them friends, you know, they're people that I see on a regular basis. And when you see someone on a regular basis, whether they have housing or not, whether they can even communicate or not, the biggest, the biggest issue for me has been the social isolation. Mm-hmm. And everybody that I've talked to that's in this experience, that's the biggest thing. It's the way people ignore them. It's the way people treat them. It's the the othering statements that people make oftentimes that are advocates or people in their lives that they don't mean to make, but just making them feel like they're not a part of the world. Um, so I try to, you know, when I see them or whatever, I try to, you know, say hello and treat them like I would just treat anybody else and not treat them like, oh my gosh, you must be going through such a difficult time because most people don't really want to hear that. They don't want to really hear someone else go, oh, you must be really struggling right now. They know they're struggling. Yeah. They don't need, they don't need <laughs> us to point that out. Tell me, some, tell me something I don't know. Right, exactly. <laughs> tell me something I'm not aware of. I'm very aware of my struggle. Thank you very much. Um, That's one of the things I find, though, in the churches that we probably need to take a little bit more seriously is, that, is the connection piece. Mm-hmm. I was at a committee meeting the other day, and someone was talking about someone in their community who's unhoused and is always mm-hmm. there. And I thought, almost every church has a couple people like that that are really part mm-hmm. of their community. It, mm-hmm. they might, it might be somebody who's just based, mostly inhabiting right. the parking lot and hardly ever comes in, but mm-hmm. they know them. 
Yeah. And we can provide an address. We can provide yeah. um, community. We can mm-hmm. provide... I think we just need to get more imaginative about that yeah. role. Well, you've mentioned imagination. It's very connected to innovation. What what role do you think imagination plays in it? Because you're that's a big part of what you're doing, right? With the with the diocese and just the work that you do and kind of getting people to rethink instead of doing things the way we've always done, right? Jesus was like, oh. You're casting your net on the same side of the boat, cast mm-hmm. your net on the other side of the boat. Um, and you're very good at that. So could you speak a little bit to that about what imagination and innovation might look like from your perspective? Well, we have this crisis of property, having property mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, uh, in the church. Like, this is a problem, that we have property. This is, should not be a problem. This, right. is, this is like... If we think about it, um, some people talk about it in terms of um, an attitude of abundance instead mm-hmm. of deprivation, that we think about mm-hmm. if you spend money, then you have less money. No, if you spend money, you're investing the money, and you're right. going to be able to have more. The same thing is true of gifts that we have, all sorts of gifts. And we have in the diocese a gift of enormous amount of property, and that's one of the problems with building here in terms of of more housing is that property is one of the big reasons why um, people aren't doing it, why the different uh, um, representatives in the districts haven't been able to meet their quotas for mm-hmm. the HHH funding. It's because the property is too expensive in their area. We can, we can step up there and mm-hmm. be more imaginative about the way we use our properties. Mm-hmm. From very basic things, like one of the things I've been thinking about is what I said before is everybody seems to have uh, a member of the community mm-hmm. in some way or another who's is unhoused. And right. maybe they could be our volunteer security guards. Mm-hmm. And instead of it being illegal for them to be there at night, they're the volunteer security guard. Mm-hmm. They have a cot. They have an address. Mm-hmm. They have like, I'm not sure that's going to work, <laughs> but it might. But it's a thing that already exists in some churches. They evidently call it a sexton. Yes. Right? So right. it's, it's already, you, go. It's, you already have precedent anyway. Go right. ahead. Right, exactly. Yeah. So like thinking like that and also thinking about our monastic tradition mm-hmm. where we did have people that had housing on the grounds. Like we could do that and the, we could be providing the city a huge gift by opening that up. And mm-hmm. the city wants to help us on that score mm-hmm. with HHH funding. So we're right now involved in, I'm working with a few architects in the committee with the bishop, um, the projects committee, where we're looking at different uh, real estate properties, mostly the churches mm-hmm. around the diocese and thinking how can we repurpose these to make um affordable housing and supportive housing, permanent supportive housing available. Um, and this is the, just to clarify, this is the um, Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles, correct? Right. And yeah. it's a huge diocese. Six counties, right? Yes. The bishops thinks that his by his count, there might be 100,000 homeless people in our diocese because it includes Ventura, it includes Santa Barbara, parts of Santa Barbara. It goes all the way to San Bernardino. It's huge. And so we have a huge, uh, the deficit thinking mm-hmm. makes me think like a huge problem. The abundance thinking makes me think we have a huge opportunity 
to create a new kind of church, a new vision of church where we're using property, we're using, um, we're making homes, we're making communities um, that could be fun places to be. Mm-hmm. And let's try it. Absolutely. Well, because like you said, I'm not the only person that attends Episcopal churches in the greater LA area that is having shelter challenges. And as I began looking around the different places that I go, and I began looking around the different ways as well, because different Episcopal congregations engage in different ways, just like every, every person engages in a different way. But there's so many people. And as I've been in part of these conversations at different churches where people have gone, well, how do I be in relationship with the homeless person in my neighborhood? And I start, you know, pushing the envelope in the church by saying, well, they're a person just like you, like, you know, greet them, say hello, you know, even just not walking to the other side of the street, they'll notice because they're a human being and they can tell when someone's avoiding them, right? And I have had people come up to me in tears after saying something like that at a church and open up to me and tell me, you have no idea I'm about to lose my housing. And they're terrified and they can't come out to the people in their own church family Mm -hmm. because they're so scared of what they're going to do and how they're going to be and how they're going to be received and all of this. And imagine if just, just for those folks alone that are already in our churches, just in the Episcopal churches, and then imagine the example to other churches if they start to see this and start to see the way that we, again, and just the folks that are already in community with us, and then how will that then spill over into our neighborhoods, into, well, it's the book of Acts. I mean, <laughs> a million drops is a secular nonprofit, but if you look at the book of Acts, they did that. They did mm-hmm. take care of each other. And <clears throat> some of us are blessed with money. Some of us are blessed with talents. Some of us are blessed with many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm certainly not just shocked at how the bishop is taking it seriously. The fact that they're even considering acting on that where, Hey, we've got this resource of property. How do we collaborate? How do we do our part in our communities where we've been a fixture in a lot of these communities for years as churches? How do we collaborate and help address this issue? And I think it's beautiful. I know it's beautiful. The other part is they give a lot back. <laughs> like I have, we, I, we run this clinic at, at Epiphany for um, the unhoused, but mostly it's for the people at risk at being unhoused. Mm-hmm. And it's so humbling to serve there mm-hmm. um, because of the generosity of some people um, when they're in such a bad situation. The, one, the, the story that strikes me, I keep going back to this guy who was crying. He was this huge black man, very, mm-hmm. very large man, crying. And just the tears were running down his face as he was telling me the story of his landlord evicting him. Um, and he'd been there for years, and he was an artist, and he needed the space to do his art, and also that was his living space, and he couldn't believe the man would be evicting him. And when I listened to him, what he was crying about was that this man had such a hard heart and he felt so bad for this man. What had happened in this man's life that he was so hard that he would want to do this to other people? Mm-hmm. He wasn't crying for himself. He was crying for his landlord. It was like, wow. That was a really humbling experience. Yeah. 
the care and compassion amongst folks. I have seen some amazing, as I've been studying it more in psychology, they call it mutual aid, people that have been through a natural disaster or some kind of group trauma or something. But the same thing happens among our community members who are unhoused and our neighbors who are unhoused. There's this feeling of compassion that overwhelms them. I see it all the time here at A Million Drops to the point where we actually want to start um, like gatherings where people can come together and we invite unhoused folks and people who are housed to come together to talk about mutual aid in particular to start with around this idea of food and maybe move it on to clothing and other things. But we see that all the time here where folks that don't have anything are somehow then given some food or get some money or whatever. And then all of a sudden they want to make a meal for the folks here at a million drops because their community, right? Mm. But they don't have anything, but they're giving what they have. It's just like, it blows my mind. It's like, they've got nothing in their pocket, but they get something. And their first thought is how can I feed the other folks in my community? How can I help the other folks in my community? Not just myself. How beautiful is that? And imagine if, Imagine if we could take that vulnerability and transform that and transform our whole culture and our whole society and how we treated each other. I think it takes the hum- humbling experience of losing everything you have to realize what's really important. And it's those around us, our relationships is what's so important that we've forgotten because we live in a very materialistic, you know, it's, let's go out and, you know, get something else or some something that we're going to have that's going to fill that connection, which really what we're wanting to connect with is each, is each other, right? Um, and so it's just so interesting to watch people who don't have a place to sleep at night give everything they've got to each other and help each other. It's really beautiful. I'd like to see the connection, too, between the heart and that kind of experience that is heartbreaking and mm-hmm. heartrending and sometimes heart heartful, sometimes mm-hmm. very positive, connected with the brain. I think we have a long way to go before we can do that. (laughs) Hopefully not. It's only like a foot and a half. It's only a foot and a half. It's a long foot and a half, Roberta. I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't always make it to my brain, but I'm always trying to work from the heart. I like that term you just use, heartful. That's so beautiful did you just make that up or did you hear that somewhere Mm, i think it's in the dictionary you think it's in the dictionary okay i'll have to google it after this podcast that's my new favorite thing to say to people is google it yeah um heartful i like that a lot because there is so much in this work to have a full heart about like i said when i met you i meet advocates so often that don't understand and they've got really big hearts and they really want to do they really want to do helpful things but when i heard you talk it was like Oh my goodness, someone in the diocese that's helping to like guide people in the way that we can go to be innovative and creative and imaginative about these things that one understands the listening component, but two understands the human component. But the biggest part of it is you get it. You Mm. get it. When I look at your face, you get it. So oftentimes advocates because I think of the fear, uh, the fear of like, oh, what must that be like? It must be really hard. I think they get nervous and they get a little bit, you willingly engage. And that day that I heard you at that housing meeting at the diocese speak, you could hear a pin drop 
in that room. And I don't know if you realized that because you were like, I'm not sure that I was. <laughs> but it was really like everybody was hanging on every word you had to say because it was so brilliant. And because you get it. You're someone who is housed, who is connecting these folks that are housed around this topic. And I just I keep seeing it happen and I keep seeing your name attached to things or hearing about, oh, Roberta, Roberta, and people keep bringing you up and you're making such a huge difference in this city. I don't know if you realize it because you're such a humble person and I you're shaking so. your head. No, <laughs> no, you don't think you are. I wouldn't have asked you to be on this podcast because <laughs> um, the advocates that, that we've had on this podcast are folks like you, people that who haven't been through the experience but have this big heart and this understanding of the humanity of the personhood. And that's the biggest thing is just being able to look people in the eye and see that they're people. They might be sleeping in a tent. They might be sleeping in the dirt. They might have all sorts of things, situations that they're struggling with that we don't even understand and can't even comprehend. But just to see their humanity is the most powerful thing. And yeah, it's really great. Um, Is there anything... As we close out this podcast, is there anything in particular that you want to leave our listeners with about the imaginative work that you're doing with the diocese? Or I just would hope that everybody goes to their faith communities. It's not just the Episcopal Church. It's not just the Christian right. churches. I think the, the Buddhists are doing it. Uh, Jewish community is stepping up. If everybody uses those faith communities mm-hmm. to draw on those faith traditions, I think they would be operating from a, a place of... a of hope and mm-hmm. um, deep traditions and communities that are maybe a little sleepy. Mm-hmm. Um, people are concerned about you know the idea of people being spiritual but not religious. I'm mm-hmm. way more concerned about people who are religious and not spiritual. Mm-hmm. Like we have to move into that mm-hmm. that spirit of community and care and hope that is deep in all these traditions and draw from there to make the change that will show the abundance that we do have as a Mm -hmm. people. Absolutely. I like that, Roberta. That's really well said. Uh, Show the abundance that we have as people. We draw on that care. And, And I believe not just in our faith traditions, in the traditions as people, you know, when you just look at humanity and the way that people, despite hard times throughout history, have come together and made it through. And I think just what we're dealing with now is rent's not affordable in the city. It's not affordable in a lot of places. It's not affordable in my hometown anymore um, in Southern Oregon, in a town of 7,000 people. There's a lot of people that are working that can't afford places to live. And hearing their stories and being present with them and finding innovative ways and creative ways and imaginative ways to be in community with each other. But that kindness and that love and that abundance of imagination is so important. I admire you a lot, Roberta Morris. Do I have time to... Oh, we totally... Yes, we have time to talk about whatever you want. What you were talking about in terms of the abundance and the Mm -hmm. rent, I think that's one thing that people don't recognize about Los Angeles. They talk about affordable housing. We don't have enough affordable housing. I think that masks an important fact in Los Angeles is that we have plenty of housing. We have downtown Los Angeles last year had 10% 
vacancy rate. The year before, it was higher than that. Wow. Now, it's come down a little bit, but they we have enough housing for mm-hmm. everybody here. Yeah. The problem is it's not affordable. And the way the economics of this work is that a landlord can make money with a 10% vacancy rate. Mm-hmm. They can make a big profit. Um, and that's wrong. I don't understand why we're not just renting those places. The city can just figure out some way of renting them. Now, everybody looks at me like I'm crazy when I say mm-hmm. that. But I was back in Canada a couple months ago, and they had one community, and I think it was New Brunswick, was doing that with because they had overcrowded prisons. Mm-hmm. They were renting these really high-end condos and for prisoners, and they had four prisoners per condo, and it was working. Mm-hmm. The neighbors were a little freaked out. So be it. Let them be a little freaked out. You'd be freaked out if you were a overcrowded prison right. <laughs> inmate, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like we have to take responsibility for our feelings and just mm-hmm. move on. But I just think that this is something that is not talked about nearly enough, yeah. that we could just rent these places. Communities can just rent those. Mm-hmm. Um, like a church community can mm-hmm. rent a few apartments and put use them for emergency housing. Yeah. There's lots of lots and lots and lots of potential, and that's why I admire you so much. You're so willing to think outside the box and cast the net on the other side of the boat and try something new and something that we haven't done before rather than continually just to talk about the folks on the side of the street that we don't know what to deal with, which I feel like is so much of the discourse right now. And when you said that, the 10% vacancy rate at the meeting at the diocese last month about housing, I was just, I was floored because I see four rent signs everywhere. And so when I hear them say, oh, there's not enough housing, and it's not even all luxury housing, a lot of it's not even luxury housing. It's just when you figure out that you have to not only pay your first month's rent, you oftentimes have to pay a last month's rent, and you're paying thirteen, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500 for a studio apartment. How are you going to come up with $3,000 when you're making $12 an hour and you're working 40 hours a week, even if you do have a second job? Because a lot of the people that I know that are surviving homelessness are employed. That's the other thing that people forget. We have, like you said, we have this misnomer that they're not contributing to society. A lot of them I know are contributing in a lot of very powerful ways, volunteering and working and different things. Um, we got a long way to go, but I believe with folks like you and me working together and finding others like us, we can do it. How do people reach your podcast? Let's uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, well, we're called Real Good Stuff. Uh, you can learn more about us at realgoodstuff.org or amilliondrops.org. A Million Drops is our parent nonprofit that we record out of. Uh, special thank you to our director, Michael Bott, and our special guest today, Roberta Morris. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you to DJ Cherish the Love. Cynthia, we are so grateful for this recording equipment. And special thank you to Sure Microphones for the impeccable sound quality. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Peace.